0: I'm going to start with verse six, John 17 and verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, there we go, that you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. but that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, Last time we were together, we were looking at this chapter, and this chapter is one of those times in the scriptures where God has drawn back the curtain so that we can see the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. Psalms 110 is like that. We are told that the father and son are speaking together. And so we're gonna enter into a time where we're gonna listen in as a father and son speak to each other. It's amazing that we have a God who wants to be known to the point that he allows us to listen in on his conversations. We have to be really careful that we don't get fanciful in our understandings, and our attempt to describe what's happening. It's very difficult with my finite mind to understand an infinite God. And far too often people try to take the finite mind and make an infinite God understandable to them. And they do so by limiting God. They make him a finite being. So as I try to explain this passage, and it's a difficult passage to say the least, as I try to explain the meaning behind this passage and the understanding of the passage, I don't want to in any way limit God or make him human in any sense. And in our attempt to explain God, sometimes we do exactly that. So I, my goal is not to do that. My goal is when we're done is to have a wonder and a marvelous understanding of just what a great god we have and how infinite is his character and how infinite is his being how gracious he is to allow us to listen in as the son speaks to the father in verse six we have we we left off there last time and many people read a predetermination into here that they were gods to start with and God gave them to the son the idea here is so much different than that. It, what it means is that they were followers of Jehovah before the son ever came. But because they were faithful followers of the Jehovah, they were looking for the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, Jesus the Christ, they recognized him for who he was. They were true and genuine Jewish believers being because they were true and genuine Jewish believers, understood the prophets. And when the prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, they recognized him as the one who was the Messiah. Many claimed to believe in God, but failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. These disciples genuinely believed in God and recognized the son for who he was. John tells us how this happened. God took the initiative and sent his son in the world, and he revealed God's name to them. They came to believe because of him giving them, the very words that the Father gave to him. And then if you'll notice in the, in the last part, it says, and they have kept your word. This is another way of expressing that their faith was genuine. The Jews had rejected the word of God. The disciples had kept the word of God. Their faith in Jesus as a Messiah showed that they were keepers of the word of God, that they took it for what it said and believed on it. Verse seven. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. We need to remember that Jesus is speaking to his fathers. He's speaking to his father. He's not speaking to the disciples. And Jesus is emphasizing that the father is a source of everything that Jesus has told his disciples. That everything that he has told the disciples has has. Come from the Father. in John 7:16, Jesus had said this, So Jesus answered them, "My teaching is not mine, but him, but His who sent me." Jesus was very clear, and as we go through this passage, we're going to see it reinforced time and time again that the message that Jesus gave was a message that the Father had to give that he didn't speak his own words, but he communicated clearly who the father was. Our understanding of the father was because Jesus Christ truly portrayed the father, both in word and deed to us while he was here on this earth. Verse eight, for I've given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. The disciples' faith had grown. They had come to understand. They believed what Jesus said because no man spoke as he did. They recognized that Jesus was full of grace and truth. They recognized that he came from God. They recognized that everything Jesus said was from God. At one point they said, where shall we go for for you have the life, for you have the words of eternal life. As they were with him, that faith grew to the point where they finally understood they didn't have a clear understanding as we saw earlier they asked questions which obviously they weren't clearly understanding even there in acts one when he ascends to the father their question was is this when you're going to in institute the the institute the kingdom of israel so they were still confused, but they understood that he was sent from God. And when he spoke, he spoke the words that God gave him and that he was God himself. It's interesting, the Greek word used for word here is rhema. In John 1.1, 1, 1, the word used for word is logos. And so there's two common Greek words used for word, translated word in the English, in the English Bible. It's one of those many things in Greek where we lose some of the meaning because we use we take multiple Greek words and we count we, we translate them with a single word, but Rima carries with it the sense of the spoken word, or that which goes out from the speaker. Logos has a sense a concept of God's communication. It's an overall thought. Rima is more a word for word, and we understand the inspiration of Scripture as being. The actual individual words, not just the concept of God. So when we speak of the word of God being inspired, we're speaking the individual words. Matthew tells us that not one jot or tittle will be part. When the Lord was tempted in the garden and he responded to Satan, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. And he uses the the Greek word "rema" there that comes from the mouth of God. The individual words, and as you as you study that, it's an interesting word study. As you go through and see when logos is used and translated as word, and when rima is used and translated as word, here in this verse he uses the concept of rima, and so we we understand inspiration as being verbal and plenary. I mean, it's a, it's a word level inspiration. It's not a concept level. It's not the big picture level. But it's a word level inspiration there's twice in scripture where it's actually a letter a letter inspiration when they challenge Jesus Christ about about the resurrection he quotes to them that that he that at the burning bush he said in the and Moses I am the god of Abraham Isaac and Jacob I am, meaning that he they were still alive and he was still their God. And so that alone made a difference. And then in Galatians, Paul tells us that when he made his promise to Abraham, he said, seed and not seeds. So an S on the end of the word made a difference. And so we understand that God inspired the Word of God down to the very words, in fact, down to the very letters, so that we understand that Paul can make emphasis of doctrine and the Lord Jesus made emphasis of doctrine based on a single letter. And what he's saying here is that his communication was verbal, plenary inspiration. His rema was given by God. And when Jesus spoke, they were actual individual words that God had given him. They weren't concepts. It was the actual individual words that he has spoken. Verse nine, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those that have given me, they are yours. The first few verses, he's praying for himself and for the father, with the father. These verses, he's praying for his disciples. We're told that he's our great high priest and he prays and makes intercession for us. And so as we read these prayers for the disciples, they are much the same prayers that he's carrying on right now in heaven on our behalf. And so as we read these and look at these, and we're going to study them more next time we're together in two weeks, we understand that these very things that he's praying for the disciples, ultimately, he's praying for us now. And here's this high priestly player. He's going to to make it very clear who he's praying for first. This does not mean that he does not love the world. He's not praying for the world. It doesn't mean he doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that he's not concerned for them. What he is saying that this prayer is for those who have believed on him. This divides humanity into two classes, the world and the believer. Many believe they have access to God, but, but they are not believers. They are part of the world. Often you hear people say, well, I prayed to God and he saved me in that accident, or God answers my prayers. It's very difficult to explain to someone that if they don't know Jesus Christ, God does not answer their prayers. Don't know who answers their prayers, but God does not answer their prayers. That God answers a prayer of unbelief that says, God, reveal yourself to me. When you're searching, God answers. But if you're praying for health or you're praying for someone's health and you're not a believer, God does not answer that prayer. These are those that are the fathers, those that, that believed on Jesus is the son of God. That's who he's telling, that's who he's praying for. And he wants to make it very specific who the message is for. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. This is where our understanding of the Godhead and our understanding of the function of the Trinity is limited by our limited mind. We're not infinite. And so I struggle in, and you might also how the Father and the Son function. But here we're told again that the Godhead holds all things in common. The Godhead holds all things in common. Jesus had told his disciples the same thing in John 10, a fairly famous passage in John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life they will never never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. A, a, a gracious double guarantee if you can that we're held by the Son and we're held by the Father. But in fact, as he's explaining here in his prayer, all mine are yours and yours are mine. It's, and and it, it, it's mind-boggling to understand as we're being held by the Father and the, and the Son, that they share us in common and they hold us together in common. I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about that, but that makes us awfully secure in our salvation, that we're held in common by the Father and by the Son. All mine, are, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And then the other part of this verse is that we're, we are glorified. Jesus Christ is glorified in believers. We are changed by the spirit of God and we live in a manner that shows forth that spirit. We glorify The son, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Earlier in this chapter, he had asked the father to glorify him. Now he's not asking the father that we glorify him, but he's saying that we are glorified we glorify the Son. We as redeemed people, we as trophies of grace, we of those who have had our lives radically changed by the grace of God, bring glory to the Son because of his work there at the cross. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Lord here is referring to a time when he is ascended and sitting at the right hand of God when there will be a physical separation between Jesus and his disciples. He's praying for them that when he's no longer here, walking this earth side by side with him, that these things be kept and these things be true. This is the only time Holy Father is used as the name of the Father in all of scripture. As we talked about earlier, the whole upper room ministry deals with holiness and deals with the holiness and the instructions and holiness that he's leaving for the sons. And here he's praying for their holiness after he leaves this earth. The only way that we glorify the son is if we live a holy life, a life that's separated, sanctified, and available for him. So he, he tells them to keep them in your name. And what does he mean? We discussed this earlier, this idea of name. We discussed that when Jesus said, pray in my name. And we spent some time discussing this concept of what name, what name means. It means to, to pray in the character, to understand the meaning of the name and what the name stands for. The Lord Jesus and the Father are one as a result, they share the name and the power of that name. The oneness of the name is in the same oneness that He is asking the Father for his disciples to have. Then they may be one even as we are one. Think about that. We're, we're, We're looking at this intimate relationship that the Father has with the Son and the things that they share in common. And his prayer for us is that as a father and the son are one, that we be one also. One of the ways, John, in First John 1, it talks about the fellowship we have, the things we share in common, the, 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 the Greek word there is konania. The things we share in common is a fellowship we have with the father and the son. We've been invited in, we've entered in, to a relationship of oneness and the same idea of oneness that the Father and the Son have. And we fail often miserably to share that oneness. But that's his prayer for them. That same prayer, that, that same fellowship, Konaniya, that the Father has with the Son is what he's inviting. One of the nice things about the breaking of bread is that we have an opportunity to share with the father the thoughts that he has of his own dear son. And as we remember him and worship him and extol him and talk about his greatness, as one of the songs puts it, his excellent greatness, the Father enjoys that because that's what the father thinks of his son. and we enter into the very thoughts, we start sharing the thoughts the father has of his own son is the same thoughts that we have. And the Bible calls that fellowship of Konania. and we have an opportunity to do that very thing. Oneness is a sign that we truly are in fellowship with the father is when we're in oneness with each other. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Except the son of destruction. The Lord had kept the disciples in his name while he was with them on earth. And again, we have the concept of his name and the Lord means he acted as a father would have acted. You'll notice a lot of this high priestly prayer and a lot of this last instruction, speak of his name, speak of his name, speak of his name. And it's a concept that we really need to understand what that means in order to understand these passages. The Lord tells there's two ways he has preserved the disciples. First, he kept them means he preserved or watched over them. And second, he guarded them as an act of protection. In the King James, it uses the same word, English word both times. In the Greek, it's a different word. In most, more modern translations, and I'm using the ESV today, they, they distinguish those two words by translating them slightly different. They mean different things. The Lord had preserved the disciples. Not, all, not one was lost of the true believers. There was one who was not a believer and is going astray fulfilled the writing of the prophets. And that's what the verse means is that there was one who was a son of destruction. The King James has son of perdition, but there was one who was lost. And that was because the prophets wrote of that one who would betray him. The disciples were safe while Jesus was with them, not because of their own strength to maintain their faith, but they were safe because he kept them and preserved their faith. He was the holding power. There's the verse in 2 Timothy, we've been studying on Tuesday nights, and it says that he remains faithful when we are faithless. I'm so thankful that my faith does not depend on my ability to keep it. I feel very sorry for people Go through this life with no assurance of salvation because they think that their faith is dependent on them. First, in First Corinthians 1, it makes it very clear in the first chapter that there will no flesh glory in His presence. There will be no one in heaven who says, I made it because I held on myself, I made it because I was able to maintain my faith. Our ability to maintain our faith is because of His guarding and preserving us. He's taken that responsibility on to himself. And he's the one that holds it. He did it for his disciples when he was on earth. He does it for us while he's in heaven. The disciples were safe while Jesus was with them, not because of their own strength. And that's so important that we remember it's not our strength. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now I'm coming to you. Jesus fully understood. John portrays him as a son of God. Jesus fully understood everything that was happening. In a few short hours, he was going to be hanging on a cross. But he knew that was not the end. He knew the resurrection was coming. He trusted in him who judges righteously. And he knew he would be vindicated. And that his sacrifice would be rewarded and that he would be magnified. He'd be promoted. He would be raised up and sat at the right hand of God. So he says, now I'm coming to you. Now I'm going back to the father. I'm on my way. And so now the question is who or what will keep the disciples once he's left? The Lord Jesus had acted as a father would have acted in the absence of the Lord Jesus, the father will now act as Jesus had acted. Do we grasp that concept? Jesus is in a way turning over to the father, the keeping and preserving of the saints. Praise be to God that the power that kept the disciples while Jesus was on earth is a power that will keep them when he is in heaven. And the same goes for us. Throughout his upper room ministry and throughout his last instructions, joy has been an issue and an important issue that he's brought out a number of times. He mentions it three times in the 16th chapter in verses 20, 22, and 24. Jesus said great joy in his disciples and his desire is that the joy he had would be fulfilled in his disciples. It well could be that he had in mind the words of the prophet Zephaniah. In Zephaniah 317, it says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud singing. The joy Jesus desired for his disciples is a joy that is not dependent on our circumstances, on our health, on our wealth, on our comfort. This joy is deprived from knowing our creator as our God. To the world, joy is totally dependent on circumstances. To the Christian... It's not. As Paul wrote the book of Philippians and he was in prison and most likely chained to a Roman soldier, he's able to say again, I rejoice, rejoice, again I say rejoice. Paul's joy was not dependent on his circumstances. Paul's joy was dependent on knowing his Savior and knowing his Creator. There is more than human joy. This is supernatural noise. This is more than human joy. He's not speaking about common joy. He's speaking about supernatural joy that overshadows human experience while not negating the experience. And and he is the prime example of this. In Hebrews 2 and 2, we're told, looking to Jesus, a founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Every circumstance screamed that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and he was going to go through a terrible time of agony. And yet, as David said earlier, this life is but for a moment compared to the eternal weight of glory. The joy that was set before him overcame any circumstances that he might have here and his life was one of joy. Now, in closing, we're going to look at at the, if I can do this, share the screen. We're going to look at the last uh, a summary of what is coming next week, and we'll go into more detail of this. But I want to I want to just look at this, if we can, briefly. See if I can do this. Um, All right, um, so we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer for his own, which is what we're going to look at next time. Okay. Uh, are you supposed to have something up on the screen? Yeah, is it not? No. So, it All right. And then select the screen you're trying to see. Yeah, I did. I'm surprised yeah. it's not up. you going to hit the share button down in the corner. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to hit the share button. My bad. Sorry about that. All right, try again. Yep, we can see it. Okay, now we can see it. All right, so the Lord's prayer for his own. He's going to address three problems, and he's going to pray for three solutions, or he's going to pray three things to solve them, and this is what we'll be looking at next week. The problem is that the world has hated them. As we saw earlier, we, he had spoken of the fact that the world hated him, and because the world hated him, he hated them. His prayer then is to keep them from the evil one. His prayer is keep them from the evil one. The problem is they're not of this world just as I am not of this world. The prayer is sanctify them in the truth. As you read these, sometimes the problem in the prayer he prays doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what we're going to talk about next week or in two weeks. The problem is you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The prayer is pray for their sake. I consecrate myself that they also might be sanctified in the truth. All right, stop sharing. How's that? Almost worked. All right. So the Lord's goal was for His disciples His holiness. And he's concerned for them, and he's concerned for them in three areas. And so he prays for three areas of holiness. The challenge is being in the world, but not of the world. The Lord's prayer will help us focus on in on his plan to keep us holy in this present world. His instruction to the disciples was holiness. He's now going to pray to the Father so our holiness might be accomplished. And that's the purpose of these threefold prayers. He will, We will investigate this plan next time we are together in two weeks. And so we'll pick up at the 14th verse when we are back together in two weeks. And um, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time we can be together. Father, we thank you that you allow us to see this intimate conversation between your son and you. And Father, we would readily admit that our finite minds just struggle to fully understand how the Godhead works. And yet, Father, we are so thankful that you graciously allow us to see what we see. May you increase our understanding. May we grasp, Father, just what a great God we have. We thank you, Father, that your desire is that we would be one as you and the Son are one. And that was his desire for us also. And Father, we would admit that our failure is that we don't practice oneness. And so Father, we would pray pray that we would have a oneness that's based on faith. And that Father, as we draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would draw near to each other. As we lose those things, Father, which make us selfish, Difficult individuals, Father, and become more like your Son, that we would draw closer to each other in, the, in in unity of our faith. And so, Father, we thank you for these instructions. We thank you that we have a high priest that prays these very things for us. His concern for us it goes so deep. And then, Father, we would pray that we truly could glorify your Son and all that we do. We do so in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.